All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you open them to Psalm 136? As we continue this morning in our series entitled, For the Love of God, as we have stated many times uh, earlier on in the series, this series is something that, it's a series that I desired to do for many, many years, but finally felt capable of doing. Talking about the love of God is one of the most significant aspects of the entire Bible, and it's certainly one of his cornerstone characteristics. But the love of God is something that cannot simply be approached academically, theoretically, or even just simply theologically. The love of God also must be experienced in one's life to truly understand the ramifications of it. And once an individual experiences the love of God, I believe it is transformational within that person's life, as it was in my life. As I was confronted with the love of God when I was 16 years old there on that porch in Elk Grove Village, as an individual had the guts to lead me to Christ right then and there, I thank the Lord so greatly for that day because from that day forward, I have never been the same. And after 32 years of walking with the Lord, I understand that it was His love for me that moved him and motivated him to come and to find and to rescue me. It is this love that I hope that we can truly uh, capitalize and also understand and comprehend as we go through the word together. But as I started to grow as a Christian early on, I discovered that not everyone saw God in the same light that I did. Specifically, that he was a God of love. Looking at 1 John chapter 4 last week, as we did, we determined that God is love. It's more than just an, an individual character of his essence or existence. He is love in and of himself. He is the originator of love in every regard. We would not know love if it were not for God. However, though, as I began to grow as a Christian, I found that many began to object to that understanding of God. And they always uh, form, formulated that objection in one, or two, one of two statements. The first was this, well, if God is such a God of love, then how in the world can he allow such suffering in the world? Maybe you've heard that yourself. The second one is the one we will address this morning. We will address that first later on in the series, but to the second one is the one that I wanted to address this morning, specifically because I do believe that for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, though, if you speak to those who have read the Old Testament, they will say, well, it appears the Bible is talking about two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, and he's mean and angry and grumpy, and he's always bringing fire down upon people's heads, etc. And then you have the loving God of the New Testament, where he's caring and compassionate and gentle and sweet and so forth. And so they say, well, it appears that God is being displayed in two different manners, if not two different gods altogether in the Bible. But is that true? And the answer to that is no. It is the same God from Genesis to Revelation. 
as the writer of Hebrews said concerning Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning that his consistency is consistent. There's a profound statement if I've ever heard it. You feel free to use that if you like. It's amazing what I come up with. But that being said, we needed to understand as Christians ourselves that the God of the Old Testament was just as much a loving God then as he is now. So how do we gain that understanding? How do we discover if that is actually true? Well, we need to go into the Old Testament itself. And we need to understand how individuals who knew and interacted with God back in that period of time felt concerning God. And one individual that I thought would be very credible because of how much he wrote about the subject was King David himself. Now, King David is known as a man after God's own heart, but we know from reading the Old Testament that King David was not a perfect man, was he? He got into trouble just like you and I get into trouble at times. He loved God tremendously. He uh, followed God where God would have him to go, but he also succumbed to temptation, of course, with the sin of Bathsheba or during the times of his life where he was running from the, uh, the antics of Saul who was trying to persecute and kill him where God was preparing David for the throne. We see David in the light of many different scenarios through the Old Testament, and therefore when he begins to write the Psalms, I then consult the Psalms and find out how did God, I'm sorry, how did David view God and God's handling of him in the Old Testament? And I quickly discover that David fully saw God as a God of love. That everything that God did in David's life from blessing to correction David interpreted that God was acting in love towards him. And therefore, I felt it appropriate this morning to take you to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is considered the great Hallel of the book of Psalms. What does that word mean? The word Hallel in Hebrew means great psalm of praise. It was a song that was sung at a specific period in time in the Jewish calendar. And as these individual psalms were sung, and please let us understand, that's what the psalm means. It means a song that was sung. David wrote many of these. These were songs that he wrote there in Jerusalem, either on the run or in the, 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 the castle, the, castle, the uh, palace itself as king. He went in his room on his electric guitar and worked out these songs. And in them, it encaps- they encapsulate the character of God. And when it comes to Psalm 136, I felt this is the one that you and I need to focus upon this morning to truly understand that the individuals, the Hebrews of the Old Testament, saw God as a God of love. So as we make our way to Psalm 136, the great Hallel, a song that was sung at the moment that sacrifices were being made as peace offerings unto God, specifically one sacrifice that we will talk about in just a moment. 
we see that they fully understood that from the moment of creation to the time of their establishment in the land, all that God did for them was out of love. Demonstrating very clearly that within the history of Israel itself and the people who followed God at that time, they saw him as a God of love. The psalm specifically stresses all that God has done for his people. And the structure of the psalm is one that is called anthropomorphical, which means that it is sung in the round. For example, if I were to read verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, you would respond in saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's try that in verse 2. Give thanks to the God of God for... Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him alone who does great wonders. I think you get the picture. 26 times it repeats, for His steadfast love endures forever. So what do you think the truth of that particular song would leave in the minds and the hearts of those who were singing it by the end of the song? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Now, all of us have been subjected to elevator music at one point in a time, haven't we? Or you're in your favorite restaurant or in the car, and all of a sudden you hear one of those songs you don't particularly care for, but you, the lyrics are just kind of catchy, and you start singing it. It can even be a jingle to a commercial, you know, uh, one that doesn't seem to want to leave your mind or your heart. I'll, I'll leave it to you. You know, mine is 588-2300 Empire. I can't get that out of my mind. Even after that gentleman passed away and went home, I went home he was a Christian, by the way, he went home to be with the Lord. I still remember 588-2300 Empire. And we just remember that, you know. Well, when they sung this song, as they were bringing their peace offering unto God, they would undoubtedly remember the fact that his steadfast love endures forever. Now, if you're here this morning and you are reading the King James, Old King, New King James, Old King James, you may remember this as your steadfast mercies endure forever. The King James translators in 1611 had a very few select manuscripts of the Old and New Testament to work from. They're also their understanding of individual Hebrew words like this word. The word that is translated mercy in the King James Bible is translated steadfast love in the newer translations due to the fact that today we understand that the Hebrew word has said means more than just simply mercy. They were correct when the King James translators first and foremost translated it mercy, but what they didn't realize due to the lack of material and evidence that they had was the fact that the mercy was a derivative of the fact that God was loving and kind towards those who were his. So I see mercy as what I would call a subsidiary understanding of his said when in actuality, the more robust understanding of said is loving kindness. His loving kindness endures forever. 
And this is where I believe that as we see the progression of our understanding of Hebrew words, we can therefore get a more clear understanding of how the Hebrews at that time understood the words that were being used within, of course, the Masoretic text, the Old Testament text, Hebrew text of the Bible. In 1946, there was a significant discovery in the West Banks of the Jordan called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were found in 12 different caves in the area of Qumran. From those scrolls, we discovered that Hesed certainly does mean more than simply mercy. We found that it meant loving kindness with a loyalty to the covenant that God has established with his, with his people. This richness gives us a vastly wider understanding of the Hebrew word hesed. And therefore, when the newer translations came and revisited the word hesed in certain areas, in 194 different places, they allowed it, therefore, its more robust understanding of his loving kindness. Now, what's interesting is that Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, ch- the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. The reason I bring this verse up is that this is directly linked to the famous verse of John 3.16. The idea is this has said, this steadfast love, this loving kindness came till its full fruition in the person of Jesus Christ, who therefore gave us a more full understanding of hesed in the Greek word agape. So there is significant ties. There's this thread, this theology from the very beginning to the point of the arrival of Jesus Christ and his first coming, that this love was demonstrated throughout the history of Israel and then climaxed in the coming of the person of Jesus Christ, where therefore God could therefore fully clarify not only in the demonstration of sending his only begotten son, but also in the perfect life in which Christ conducted himself towards human beings to understand this love for one another. So that's the way we should see it. The God of the Old Testament, the same as the God of the New Testament, loving his people in the same exact way throughout history and climaxing into the person of Jesus Christ. If you're interested, I should say, you can go online and read the Dead Sea Scrolls for yourself. Please look for uh, scroll 4Q95 and 11Q5, and you will find Psalm 136 there for you. Again, helping us to understand the words that we have within the Bible. This steadfast love that he speaks of 26 times here in Psalm 136 194 times throughout the Old Testament. We discover that God desired to love his people and all that he did for them was out of love for his people. 
And as a result, this love is encapsulated within the verses of Psalm 136. Within the first three verses, they extol him as the Lord in whom he is. And when David writes, give thanks to the Lord, the word thanks in the Hebrew is the word that also means to acknowledge and to confess. It's more than just being thankful for thinking you know who God is. It is being thankful because you have seen God work in your life. You're acknowledging and confessing that God has shown his steadfast love to you. And then he follows this with two statements of God's sovereign authority. Give thanks to the God of gods. Is this acknowledging that there are other gods before him? No. But man has created other gods and have personally deified those gods himself. Being it from a material object to some kind of sensual pleasure. There is no God that stands before our God. Demonstrating that he is supreme in all the universe and there is no one like him. And then in verse 3, it says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is speaking directly of the sovereignty of God. That there is no one that God must consult before God does what he chooses to do. There's no one above him. You can't go to God in your prayer life and ask him for something and him saying no and saying, Listen, can you give me your supervisor? There's no one above him. He is completely sovereign to do as he desires. But that sovereignty would be very scary to the individual, especially the translators of the King James Bible. Sovereignty in the medieval period of time was a very scary notion. They saw the kings of their time demonstrating their sovereignty accountable to no one very subjectively. They they didn't know if they pleased the king or if they had the king's favor or if the king despised them in some way. You can imagine this. Then going before the king, it can be a very terrifying experience, not knowing what to experience, uh, what you're going to experience once you get there, I should say. However, though, when it comes to God, His loving kindness endures forever. They know that the sovereign king that sits on the throne of all creation, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, Jehovah, Yahweh, is a God who loves his people. The word endure there is more than just simply enduring some type of pressure before breaking or enduring a pressure without breaking more specifically. The word endurance there in the, in the Hebrew means more along the lines of from beginning to end. That God consistently acts within this loving kindness towards his people. Meaning you're not going to get on your knees one day, start praying and discover God is cranky that day. Do you, do you know those... Do you, do you guys have people in your lives like this where you just don't know what you're going to get until you meet them and talk to them? You just don't know if they're going to be cranky today or if they're going to be in a good mood today. And you want to approach them on a subject, but you're waiting for that perfect time to do so. Really? I'm the only one? 
No, okay, come on. Don't leave me up here hanging. I mean, you know. Uh, and you're just like, and you're walking on eggshells, hoping that now is a good time to bring up this, that, you know, can I, listen, can I get my Tupperware back from you? No, I know. You know, and you don't want to stir the pot. God is not like that. You can be confident of who you're approaching. You can be confident that his love towards you is enduring forever. And that it surpasses even our understanding of how that is possible. When it came into the New Testament, we see words like long-suffering used, patient, kind, And this, therefore, always allows the door open to God. Even in examples in Chronicles, I think of quickly Psalms, uh, Ezekiel, three passages I can think of off the top of my head, where the children of Israel sinned against God. He invited them tenderly back to him, saying, why won't you come back to me? Why won't you repent of your sins and come back to me? Why won't you tear down the altars to the pagan gods who have done absolutely nothing for you? but I have been continuously faithful to you from the very beginning. So we can have that confidence that the sovereign, all-supreme God over all the universe is a loving God towards us. And this is what the first three verses of this song that they sung would remind them of continually. But then they go on to the act of creation itself. Look with me in verse 4. To him alone who does great wonders, and now the psalmist will begin to write concerning those wonders. And of course, the reciprocal response for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spreads out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever." they saw that God's initial act of creation was an act of love towards mankind. Each and every day that God created, and I believe they were literal days, 24-hour periods of time, people who object to that say, well, uh, is it really possible that God could create all that is created in six days? It seems quite a short period of time. Well, I guess that's based on your understanding of God. For me, I don't know why it took him six days. Seems like a long time to me. And then he rested on the seventh day. Now, he didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired and exhausted. He rested on the seventh day because all that he created, he deemed as good. Now, from the very beginning, we saw that the psalmist says in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for what purpose? Because he is good. That word good is perfect. Whole is a better word or holy in the sense that it is, he is consistent in every way and that he is lacking of nothing. 
So after he finished the act of creation, he looked upon his creation and says, it's perfect, just the way I would have it. Absolutely perfect. It reflected his goodness, and therefore he could call it good, including the creation of you and I. Which at the end of the sixth day, when he created man, he said clearly, in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Specifically, designed and purposed them not only to bear his own image, but also carry male and female. Obviously, this talks to the issue that many are struggling with today, transgenderism, which is a strong personal struggle that an individual can carry within their heart. But God brings about clarity to that, that the anatomy does matter and also distinguishes gender. But in his own image is two words that many have pondered and studied and researched for many, 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 many centuries. We, as individuals, bear the image of God. One of the aspects that we are capable of fulfilling for God is the issue of reciprocating the love that has been shown to us. We don't have that demonstrated in the other aspects of the created being, a reciprocal ability to show and to demonstrate love towards God. I want to make it clear, though, that when God created, He did not create out of the fact that He was insufficient or lacking something in, uh, in and of Himself. But He did create us with the ability to love in return. And I believe that from the very beginning, noticing how God interacts with His people, that that is the desire that He has had from the very beginning of the foundations of the world. That He have a love relationship with His own creation. That's what God desired. And I believe that's consistent throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and it certainly is consistent through the person of Jesus Christ. But in creation, the Jewish people saw that it was a dynamic act of love. God, knowing everything that was going to happen before it happened, knowing fully that Adam and Eve would sin, therefore, in the garden, and that they would then die, and they would need a Savior, he was perfectly willing and capable to, to provide that Savior for fallen mankind. And yet, he still went through with the act of creation. And if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe on him and shall not uh, die but have everlasting life, if God loved the world to send his only begotten Son, then he must have loved it before the creation process. Because he states in Romans, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son for us. So think about this for a moment. The Jewish people carrying their peace offering onto God, singing this song, looked at creation and saw that the act of creation itself was an act of pure love out of the heart of God. 
But then they go on in verse 10 to remind themselves of the redeeming factor of God bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and out of uh, an outstretched arm, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who will divide the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To, whom, to him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. He begins with the Passover. Understanding that God said that the firstborn of Egypt would die, firstborn male of Egypt would die unless they were to paint the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a lamb. And once they did so, the angel of death would pass over that house and spare the firstborn of that land, of that home, excuse me, firstborn male of that home. Individuals had the choice to use the blood or not, Those who didn't suffered the consequences. Those who did were spared. And from the very beginning, they saw this as an act of love, judging the unrighteousness of Pharaoh and allowing for the children of Israel to be released from the slavery in which they were in bondage to. And then, of course, it didn't end there. But then as he brought Israel out from among them, verse 11, with a strong arm and an outstretched, I'm sorry, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, verse 12, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, verse 13, and made Israel pass through the mist, verse 14, but overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea, verse 15, and to him who led his people through the wilderness, verse 16, It wasn't just simply the release from the bondages of Pharaoh. It was the deliverance all the way to the land in which God had promised to them. God was faithful and it was his love that guided God each and every step of the way to bring his people from the bondage in which they once incurred to the salvation or the new land in which he was giving them. And once he got the people to Mount Sinai, he then told through Moses, the people concerning his heart for them. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 states, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so the Israelites remember that not only their deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh, which was the superior authority in all the world at that time. There was no one greater than Pharaoh in all the world at that time. And God 
demonstrated his authority over Pharaoh. And through the sacrifice of the firstborn, he led the people out and he gave a Passover for the exclusion of, from judgment. And then he brought them through the wilderness. And all of this would be sung and remembered as they were bringing their peace offering unto God. That he did all of this because his steadfast love endures forever. Certainly we know that the children of Israel were at best problematic with God during the wilderness period, weren't they? He would do great things and then they would question his goodness immediately thereafter. They even came to the point that they wanted to go back to Egypt because, you know, those leeks and onions, they look so good. Really? I don't know who would ever eat a leek. You know, all the things we've got to eat and somebody goes to Woodman's and buys a leek. You know, it's just like, well, God bless you, but that's not for me, you know? Uh, Do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder uh, who's the first person to try things? You know, if evolution is true, then we would have never made it as a society, right? Someone would go, let's try shellfish uncooked. (laughs) dead. You know, it's incredible to think of. But they tested God and tempted God each and every step of the way through the wilderness and God's love remained faithful to them. Not that he didn't chastise them, not that he didn't deal with them, especially when they came to the land and because of their unbelief, they would not go in. He made them wander for 40 years, dealing with them as a parent would deal with a child but he loved them through it all. And the people would remember that. In fact, when you come to verse 17, as they were wandering in the wilderness, they had many different obstacles that they needed to overcome. They had individuals, these great kings of the lands in which they were being given. God needed to be their great champion before them. For they were incapable of doing anything without the help of God. So in verse 17, to him who struck down the great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed the mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Shion, the king of the Amorites, and his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever a heritage to Israel, his servant. They saw the impossibilities that they faced once they got into the wilderness and once they were making their way to the land in which God had promised to them. And even when they got into the land, Joshua still was required to be obedient to the Lord and let the Lord champion them before their aggressors. As God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment towards these different kingdoms that were in the land in which God was prepared to give to them, they saw that each and every act of God allowing them an inheritance from nothing was an act of love by the hand of God. And they remembered him for it. Turn with me to Psalm 103. I think it's, 
incredible when you read Psalm 103 in the light of everything that we have just discussed. What David writes, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, he writes. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all the benefits who forgives all the iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagle's wings. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known to his, his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in a field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. It is a and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and the righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and all his kingdoms rule, kingdom rules over all. Excuse me. Bless the Lord... O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord and all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works and in all the places of all his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Did David understand God to be a loving God in the Old Testament circumstances in which he lived at that time? What is your answer to that question? Absolutely, he did. And as we return to Psalm 136, we can see that this was not just an individual occasion in the life of David. David saw this from the very beginning of his relationship with God to the very end that God was a steadfast God of love towards those who are His. And in verse 23, in a more personal, intimate way, speaking as one who sees God as their Father and God taking on the role of a father towards His child. In verse 23, it is he who remembers us in our lowly estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food, and the word food there also means sustenance or sustaining 
uh, capabilities to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. One rabbi wrote interestingly about these last three verses that he saw within them the responsibility of a Jewish man who was about to adopt an orphan from the Jewish society. That he would be the individual lifting that child up from the loneliness in which he found him. That he would protect the child and take care of the child and be responsible for that child through all of his growing years until adulthood. And that he would sustain that child with all that that child needs as he grows to manhood or womanhood in that culture. And so we see a personal element here between the individual follower and their God. Undoubtedly, David saw himself in this light concerning God. God, you have raised me up from the lowly stature of just being a shepherd boy. I was the least amongst all my brothers and you lifted me up. And you brought me into this place where Saul was threatening my life and he was chasing me from one end of Israel to the other. And yet you protected me, Lord. You guided me, Lord. You kept me safe all those years, Lord. And everything that I needed as I was growing and you were preparing me to become the king that I would become, you provided for me. And David ended each and every one of those truth realities with this, his steadfast love endures forever. As he then concludes in verse 26, give thanks to the Lord. I'm sorry, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. The great C.H. Spurgeon said it this way of Psalm 136. He says, this is what this psalm teaches in whole. Number one, past, present, or future will never, ever end his love towards you. The storms of life will never end his love to you. Distance from loved ones will not end his love for you. Death itself will not end his love for you. Never-ending love should make us, therefore, love one another. God's never-ending love should make us hopeful and hopeful for others. God's never-ending love should make hopeful for ourselves that he loves us. This is the way that the individuals of the Old Testament viewed their God. Now, from the very beginning, I said that this psalm was sung, the great Hellel was sung as a peace offering was being brought before God there in the temple of Jerusalem. What I neglected to tell you was this. It was a very specific peace offering that the great Hallel was sung. Psalm 136 was sung by the people as they were bringing their Passover lamb to the temple to be slaughtered on their behalf. Think of it this way, that as you get to the Gospels, and Jesus is riding on the white horse, I'm sorry, on the lowly donkey. And as he's entering in the city of Jerusalem and all are crying out Hosanna around him, the song that would be sung around him would be this song. Remembering the steadfast love that God has always had for his people. And there riding on the back of the donkey was the ultimate explanation and example of the love of God towards his people. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Or Jesus sitting in the temple 
as individuals were bringing their lambs, now individually more specifically to the priests to be approved or to be slaughtered for the remission of their sin for the acts of Passover. And Jesus sitting in the temple and he sees the lines of people with the lambs draped over their shoulders and the method in which they would carry those lambs at that time. And he looks up with those eyes and he says, all ye who are burdened under heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And when he said that, were they in the line singing this song for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? Something to think about. The psalmist stated in Psalm 5-7 from the very beginning, he said, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, David writes. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. In Psalm 100, David writes, he says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all earth. Serve the Lord with all gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and that he is, it is he who has made us, and we are his, and we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Blessed be his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and he is faithful to all generations. The love of God demonstrated in the Old Testament, I believe, is undeniable. And it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. However, though, let us understand that when they would sing this at Passover in the Jewish mind, there would always be the jubilation of God's deliverance, uh, delivering them out of the land of Egypt. They would always remember that incredible rejoicing uh, fact that he has delivered them from the bondages of Egypt. But they also would have remembered the bondages of Egypt. And they would also remember the cruelty that they experienced under the hand of Pharaoh before God released them from their bondage. This was a song sung in the full capacity of understanding salvation. Today, anyone who is not in Christ is under the slavery of the wicked one. For the ruler of this world is Satan himself. They may feel as if they are their own personal free moral agent, accountable to no one and under no one's authority or subjection. However, I tell you, the Bible says you're wrong. You're under the way and the sway of the wicked one. And he's a terrible master. For he has one purpose, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy all that is in your life. And he is going about seeking whom he may destroy. I will tell you that in my personal life, at the night I was given the opportunity to come to saving faith, there was another individual on that exact same porch and she refused to give her life to Jesus Christ. And the love of God that saved me was rejected by her. And unfortunately, her life afterwards, she was just torn up by the world around her to the point where 
she became so hard and so critical and so bitter that when I saw her some years later to share with her about Christ once again, she wanted nothing to do with it. The world is not your friend. The ruler of this world is not your friend. It is only through the Passover lamb of Jesus Christ that we can escape this world and therefore serve the one true God who loves us and has our best in mind for us. And we can only find that through the person of Jesus Christ. This morning we come now and celebrate communion together on the first Sunday of this month. And as we celebrate communion, we are undoubtedly remembering the moment that Jesus Christ died for our sins. It would be that moment that you can say that your Passover lamb is being remembered for the sacrifice in which he has made on your behalf. For Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. So this morning, as you're coming forward during this last song, Will you please come forward remembering this psalm that was sung during the Passover and remember, please, that it was God's love for you that moved him and motivated him to do all that he has done on your behalf. Finding you in the bondages of the slavery to the ruler of this world, he came, found you, saw you, and saved you. And let us celebrate now that new life that we have in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And remember this, that his steadfast love for you endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as we prepare for our hearts for communion. And Lord, I just thank you, Lord. That's all I can say. Thank you for the incredible gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. But Lord, I pray that today we have eliminated all doubt of your love towards your people and people in the Old Testament. Father, your love was abounding at that moment. And yet, Father, people still don't see it. So Lord, I do pray that as we move now and continue our series next week, that we will remember that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your steadfast love endures forever. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment of communion. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.